You're listening to Voice Acting Mastery, episode number 137. Welcome to the Voice Acting Mastery podcast with Crispin Freeman. VoiceActingMastery.com is your place to learn both the skills and the mindset you need to become a professional voice actor, even if you're just getting started. In each episode of this podcast, you'll discover valuable tips, tricks, and insider information to help you portray characters in animation, video games, and beyond. And now here's your host, voice actor Crispin Freeman. Hi there. My name is Crispin Freeman, and I'll be your guide through the world of voice acting. If you'd like to know more about me, feel free to check out my personal website at www.crispinfreeman.com. In this episode, I'm happy to share with you part one of my interview with the amazingly talented and astoundingly accomplished Keith Farley. Keith's work is so varied that it's difficult to reduce him to categories. He's acted on stage, on screen, and in front of the microphone. He's voice-directed animation and video games. He's also one of the creators of the hit musical Bat Boy. He's even produced an animated series version of the Spy vs. Spy comics from Mad Magazine. You may be familiar with his voice acting work as Thane Krios in the Mass Effect series of games, the villainous Kellogg in Fallout 4, as well as Eruptor in the Skylanders series of games. He's also voice-directed the incredibly popular animated show The Rugrats for the animation studio Klasky Chupo. When The Rugrats video game was in development, Keith was asked to voice-direct it, and so began his work in interactive media. He's voice-directed such high-profile game franchises as God of War, Call of Duty Black Ops 3, and Final Fantasy XV. And those are just the highlights of his work in games and animation. His theatrical and radio accomplishments are too numerous to mention here. Suffice it to say, I was very eager to sit down with Keith and get his insight into the voiceover world. In the first section of our discussion, we talk about the early part of Keith's career and how his passion for top 40 radio hits eventually led him towards storytelling and theater. His love of story in all its forms is what gave him the flexibility to be open to whatever entertainment opportunity came his way, whether it was an acting job or some other position in production. In fact, it was his willingness to take a relatively low-level production assistant job at an animation studio that allowed him to learn the process of creating cartoons. The education he got from that experience not only led to more and better opportunities at the studio, but it has helped him immensely in all aspects of his career. I really admire Keith's openness and his humility when it comes to working in an industry that can often be emotionally challenging, and I'm eager to share his wisdom with you. So without further ado, here's Keith. And now, the feature segment. Well, everyone, we are very honored to have a very special guest with us today, the fabulously talented Keith Farley. How are you, Keith? I am well. Yay. Good to have you here. Yes. Well, thank you for having me in your lovely studio, the VO Lounge. It is. It's still got that new studio smell. It does. Yeah. It does. (laughs) Just so my listeners know, we are sitting in uh, Keith's fabulous new studio, new as of, what was it, April 2018, right? Yep. April 2018, here we are in your fabulous VO Lounge, which is your custom-built, incredibly stylish and up-to-date, state-of-the-art studio where you can do all of your lovely VO magic. 
Um, and I'm sure you not only use it for your own home studio purposes, but it's large enough to hold classes as well. Indeed. And, and I know you offer classes and uh, I don't know if you offer any other voiceover services here at the classes, Lounge. personal coaching, you know, um, whatever, however an actor wants to work with me to improve. Yeah. I'm happy to offer that service. Awesome. And we're going to get into all of that. But first, before we talk about that, I would love for my audience to get a better sense of who you are and how you started um, as a performer and how you got into this whole voice acting world. What inspired you to become a performer? Well, I've always been intrigued by stories. Mm-hmm. Um I, I was a, a huge fan of of movies growing up, even as the, the smallest um, time that I can remember being a little tiny kid. Um, I was fascinated with the stories of movies and magic. And I was always that kid who loved talking into microphones. I was the kid who came home from school and set up the 40, the record player with the microphone that came over and hung down and I pretended I was a DJ. Wow. Um, yeah, I think I heard that. In you, those when early you were, afternoons, circa the mid-70s. When, yeah. So when you were young, you were you were really enamored with the idea of playing DJ. I loved recording myself and then playing it back. What was so fascinating about that for you? I don't know. I think it was that that feedback, like being able to to make something and then it 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 continues, and you can play it over yeah. for other people and make them laugh um, and entertain them. And there was a great thing that, I don't know if you're old enough to remember these, there was a guy that used to do, like, interviews, and then the answers were all current songs. Oh, very so clever. It was like, I'm at the carnival today, and I wonder how much it costs to go on this ride. And they would play, come on and take a free ride. <laughs> You know, and yeah, it was yeah, that yeah. sort of thing. Sure, and they did sure. it with Jaws, and they did it with all these other... Yeah, yeah. And I just thought those were the funniest things ever. So I would try to make up those when right. I was a kid and and trying to, you know, crack my friends up and do that. I was the kid that did all the, the, the shows in the backyard and haunted houses every Halloween. I was just... Oh, wow. ...really into making stuff. How old were you when you were doing all of this? Like eight, nine... Okay. Ten around that it's always age, always kind of a self-starter. <laughs> well done, yeah. Well, well done. Done. you know. So then, uh, that at some point that translated into acting, right? right? So how did that? How did that happen? You're you're playing well, around with mics and things, and then yeah. And I took some magic classes, you know. Okay, at the park, sure. And I, there were some uh, filmmaking classes offered at the our local park service. Okay. So I did. I did all of that. <clears throat> and this did, was here in California. I was in Long Beach, California when in I Long first Beach. Okay. started out, and gotcha. then we moved to Sacramento. Okay, which was a huge culture shift. I'm sure it was huge. Uh, in like when I was about ten. Okay, in the middle of the year in fifth grade. Uh huh. Um, <clears throat> and I went from being the uh, just getting the hang of kickball to <laughs> soccer. <laughs> which I knew nothing about. Right. So I might just, as well be speaking another language. Right. Yeah. So I went from being the, you know, the top of the top of the heat oh dear. to just the bottom rung. And I had to work my way back up. Fortunately, I found friends. Fortunately, I found people who shared my interest <laughs> in, in music and performing and writing and sort of fell in with those folks. And uh, by the time I was in high school, there was a radio station on campus uh-huh. at my high school. So I was able to learn radio gotcha. um, by 
being part of that in a high school environment. So that must have been a great gift if you're playing radio DJ when you're 8, 10 years old. And then once you get to high school, there's actually the opportunity to be a DJ. Yep. And was were you playing just hits, pop, popular yep. music? Okay. It was top 40. Okay. Top 40 format. Sure. I remember one time we had a, the, the signal was like, like a five watt okay. carrier current. So meaning it would just kind of jump onto the power lines oh, wow. and transmit within a radius that was maybe not a mile, maybe a half a mile from the school. So I would always wow. get in the car though, turn on the radio and kind of dial it to, and see what the range was. Or just see what the kids on the, oh, on the station were doing uh -huh. while it wasn't being broadcast through the speakers to the campus, which was oh. during passing periods and lunch before and after school, we opened up the speakers on campus and it was the soundtrack of your wow. high school. Okay. So, but in between we had people on the air, uh -huh. um, but we just, it was just kind of broadcasting into a void. So I caught a guy one time just playing Leonard Skinner tracks. Okay. Like the whole time. And I was like, oh, can't we have a format. You, know? <laughs> you can't just play the whole album. You can't just play whatever you want. Yeah. We have a format. We have we have current A's. We have recurrents. We have oldies. We, you know. Wow. You have to stick to the format. Yeah. Because I was a big Top 40 guy. I loved Top 40 radio. So you're doing all this radio stuff, but you're not even thinking about acting yet, are you? You're just sort of... I was also in the plays and the... Oh, you were? And uh, musicals and... Yeah. Okay, so where did the, where, I mean, I can see you playing at home with a microphone, but where did the acting bug sort of kick in? The acting in? bug kicked in about the same time. I remember the first inkling I had was when The Sting came out, and I think Robert Redford and Paul Newman both uh -huh. made like a million dollars. Yeah, I thought. Acting in the movie. Yeah, I thought, yeah. <laughs> I, I want to. I can do that. I want to do that. Yeah. I want to make a million dollars for being good looking and charming and <laughs> sexy. Yeah, that was the dream, right? Yeah. And then you know you get in and you can't, and then you can't get out. You know, you're you're hooked. Yeah. So I started doing the. Was that in high school when you? That was elementary school. Oh, that elementary was like school. About the same time as I'm listening to top forty radio. I'm doing that at home. I'm seeing, I mean, it's like pop culture that's sort of like okay. turning on the TV and seeing like, oh, I, I want to be like the Brady Bunch or the Partridge Family or, um, so did you, were you or taking, the Sting. Were you taking acting classes in elementary school? There or? were plays offered, you know, okay. they would do the musical. And I also was in music. I played uh, trombone. Oh, okay. So I was in the band. I just did everything I could to... Because I loved it. I loved music. I loved performing. I loved... Yeah. So I was in, I was in all the bands. Um, concert were... band, jazz band. I was in a Dixieland band for a while, which was wow. a heck of a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, did madrigals, choir, jazz choir, sang in choir at church. Sure. Um, so that was... And made movies, you know. I had a little Super 8 Super, movie camera. Yeah. Made movies, in, you know, during the summer and in my spare time. Um, was just doing what I'm doing now with this studio. It was yeah. like creating stuff, making stuff up and putting it out into the world. And were your, did your parents encourage you to do this? Were your parents shocked that you were doing this? Like <laughs> we always joke about, uh, a friend of mine and I who grew up in the same neighborhood, we talk about our unsupervised youth, mm, Yeah, which it was the opposite of helicopter parenting. 
was what we got, which was just be home before it's dark. Yeah. Well, it's it's like there's the, that whole series of 80s films, like The Goonies, right. where kids are riding around the neighborhood on their bikes with nobody around. It's yeah. what they're doing in Stranger Things now. And I remember reading an article, they're saying, we can't make these movies anymore because no one lets their kids just ride around until dark on their bikes anymore. Like, it doesn't happen. Why? <laughs> People freak out. I mean, I'm not a they parent, do. so I they don't. They do. And I had this conversation with, with a parent yeah. uh, to go off subject for a second. And I said, you know, we have this, we have this unrealistic fear that something horrible is going to happen to our children if we let them walk to the store to get milk. Yeah. We have this, you know, this irrational fear that someone's going to come and swipe them or they're going to get run over. I said, my kids know how to look both ways when they cross the street. <laughs> yeah, you hope so, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, at, 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 you know, and you get to like nine, ten, you know, and they're like, they're fairly self-sufficient. Sure. And I said, but I understand. There's that irrational fear that comes in like, well, what if? Yeah. But the reality is those things are the, the if you were really that worried about your children well-being mm -hmm. you'd never put them in the back seat of a car right because the chance of them getting hurt or maimed or disfigured or killed in the back seat of a car is way higher yeah than having something happen to them walking to the corner store to grab a candy bar gotcha so when you, Arizona tea. so anyway when you became an equal opportunity me. performer your parents were like hey as long as you get home before dark Pretty much. And, and the great story was when we moved to Sacramento, I was trying to fit in so hard that I tried out for the football team. Oh, wow. and, and I remember being out there on the gridiron. And I'm not sure if these two events actually happened concurrently, but they, in my mind, they do. Yeah. I was like on the line and, you know, blocking and protecting the quarterback. Okay. And wow. some kid came across the line and I was blocking him or whatever. And he started crying. Oh, dear. Because I, I kicked him in the shin by accident or yeah. he, it was too rough for him or whatever. So he started breaking down crying. I was like, ah, I don't want to make other guys cry. Yeah, and I don't like hurting people. In my mind, I then turn around and I see my mom running out across the field. And she goes, you're coming with me. I found you a theater company. Let's go. And wow. takes me off the field and takes me to... Bobbin Gay Crab, who ran in our neighborhood, was the woman who was in charge of the Arden Park Children's Theater. Wow. And she was one of those women who had in her home costume racks with all the shows that she would do. Simple Simon and Several Friends and Peter Rabbit and wow. Tom Sawyer and radio shows. We did live radio shows with My her God. where she had you know, glass boxes where you can put a plate of glass in and then you smash it uh -huh. and then the, the glass tinkles, tinkles down through some wood slats that are put in there. Yeah. And so she, it was like going from one, like a, like string theory. It was like going from one possible future, which would have been, you know, being sports and football and what yeah. have you and going to another, which is where I think I, was meant to be and where my mom was paying enough attention yeah. that she knew where I belonged, that it wasn't on the football field and it was more in the theater. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, thank goodness for thank that. Thank goodness right? for that. So the, she, she, they, I would have been slaughtered. And this was high school basically where she yanked you off the football field. Or no, this no, was, was like sixth grade. Oh my God. Fifth, sixth grade. No right wonder. after we moved. And it was, I think it was the fall of my sixth grade year. Cause that's football season, right? Okay. Yeah. Wow. 
I, I never had, we never had football at our school. Insurance was too high. Um, yeah, who knows? Um, so uh, you're, you're an equal opportunity performer all through high school, it sounds like, yeah. right? You're still playing your trombone. Yeah. You're, you're doing your acting. You're doing your radio stuff. And then you go off to college, yeah? Yes. Okay. And did you go to study performing? Did you, did you continue performing I did. I stayed in Sacramento. Um, I just wasn't really ready to leave home yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and my senior year... Um, of high school, I was hired by the local top 40 radio station and I worked two to 8 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Right. Doing public affairs programming and I got to DJ a little bit from like two to 240 and then from 6 30 to 8. Gotcha. So Sunday morning when all my friends were getting up and getting ready for church, I was able to, I was their top 40 DJ, which was fun. <laughs> okay. So you're doing, you're doing right. See, and this is really great because. Um, you know, when people interview voice actors, usually the statistics are something to the effect of 75% of voice actors have a background in theater. Right. And then there's like this 20% that are radio and the rest come from like stand-up comedy or whatnot. Yeah. And so far on the podcast, I haven't really talked to many people who have a radio background. So it's really interesting to me to talk to you as someone who, from very young age, yeah. was sort of fascinated with radio. I'm and, still fascinated with radio. Yeah. So you go you go through high school, you're doing all this acting stuff. You, I mean, sorry, college. You go through college, you, you're doing the acting stuff, you're continuing with the, with the radio stuff. Right. Um, so then you graduate college and you get a million dollars to be paid to be in the next Sting 2, right? No. Done. Yeah? Is that how it works? <laughs> Game <No>. over. <laughs> uh, and here we are. Yeah. No, I, I realized, I mean, after, after three years at Sacramento State, I realized that I needed to up my game. Okay. Um, and um, I transferred to UCLA mm-hmm. um, and really focused on um, theater, film, and television. Okay. That was what, and I was just, radio had sort of petered out for me and had played out. Okay. And hadn't really discovered, like, voiceover as as an option at sure. that point. So I thought it was TV and film. I mean, that's where I was going. I was going yeah. after the sting. I was going after that. And um, got my degree at UCLA Spent a couple years wondering, like we all do after college, like, what do I do now? How do I make this thing work? Yeah. Um, was a singing waiter for a while. Wow. At a restaurant called the Moonlight Tango Cafe okay. on Ventura Boulevard, which was, you know, an acting job of sorts. <laughs> sure. <laughs> at least I could convince myself, like, I was making good money as a waiter, and I got to sing a couple times a night. So yeah. So that was fun. And... um then I was cast at the Texas Shakespeare Festival, and I went out there, and I oh, nice. played Claudius in Hamlet, and, wow. and Oregon and Tartuffe, and came back and got in a play that a friend of mine wrote that we did at the Beverly Hills Playhouse, okay. and invited some agents to come out and see me, and one of them signed me. Nice. Uh, and that was the beginning of an on-camera career. Okay. Um, you know, I did Full House and 90210, big parts on small shows. Okay. And... Um, <laughs> Big parts on small shows or small parts on big shows? Small parts on big shows. That's what yeah. I meant to say. <laughs> Strike small, that. Small little shows. Reverse, Reverse it. it. Yes. Right. Um, enough. Yeah. Small parts on big shows, definitely. Yeah. Um, and uh, then I met my wife. Okay. Uh, at a gig. We were in, in Japan at a theme park in Japan. 
down near Nagasaki. We you were got around. Americans hired to play Dutch royalty at a recreation of Amsterdam near Nagasaki. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Because the Dutch were the only ones allowed on in Japan to do trading, and they were isolated on that one little island. Uh, Kyushu. Was, yeah. Uh, but no, I mean, in the section, they, they had their own little... Uh, promontory was it was it at Nagasaki yep. or Osaka? It was at Nagasaki, right near Nagasaki, yeah. right near Nagasaki, yeah. where basically they had a pier and yep. they could they could hang out. The Dutch could hang out there before Commodore Perry came in and forced the Japanese to play with the rest of the world. Indeed. So yeah. you are the only person I've met who was like, oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's wonderful wall scrolls of all the Dutch with these really big noses yes. playing with geishas uh, yes. on, their, on their special little uh, pier. And you must know the story of the, um, the Portuguese. Oh, what did the Portuguese do? They came in know. and tried to convert the Japanese oh, to yes. Christianity. Yes, and the yes. Jap- and Japanese were like, oh, so the highest uh, honor in your religion is crucifixion. Yes. And they hmm. crucified like 27 of them. On this uh, hilltop in Nagasaki, and there's a... Oh, that dear. was the end of the Portuguese. They landed about the same time. Yeah, yeah. Portuguese were sent packing, Yeah, yeah. so to speak. Not so much. And uh, the Dutch, they were like, oh, okay. Yeah, we're cool. Dutch were like, what do you say? How about this porcelain? <laughs> it's nice, right? <laughs> you like it, right? So you're in Nagasaki, anyway, and that's where I met my wife. We came back, and I was still pursuing um, the on-camera uh, mm-hmm. acting, and doing okay. Mm-hmm. You know, making a making a living. Oh, and, hello! Uh, we have a little puppy here with yes. us. Hello, he is so little puppy's excited. name is Menomino, and you're just adorable, <laughs> aren't you? But you can't play with my recording device because that'll be bad. Come so, here, buddy. Oh, this is the second time we have a lovely puppy with us for he the interview. He's a lovely dog. He Come is here, a lovely buddy. dog. He wants to get to know you better. Of course he does. But he should stay here with me. All right, you stay there, Menomino. I'll keep him occupied. Okay. Um, so came back from Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and picked up a job at Klasky Chupo um, as a you? PA. Yeah, okay. And we were, it's funny because at the time, Klasky Chupo was right at the corner of Highland and Fountain, and we were just a block east on McCadden. So you mean, when you say we, you mean. You and mean, I lived in a house. A block east. On McCadden. <laughs> Convenient. Yes, it was and, very convenient. And for my audience who might not know, I mean, who, who doesn't? But Klasky Chupo is an animation studio, right? right. Famous for creating The Simpsons, right? Uh, back on the Tracy Ullman show, back in the day, well, Matt Groening created The Simpsons, but right? But they, they were, were the ones that animated it yeah, exactly. for those early, early seasons. Yeah, yeah. Um, before it went off to Film Roman and other places. Gotcha. So, uh, Anne had picked up a job as a PA there on a show called Duckman. Okay. Duckman went on hiatus and jumped over to Spumco and started working on Ren and Stimpy. Mm, okay. When her job came back, she was having so much fun at Ren and Stimpy, she didn't want to go back to Klasky. So she said, why don't you oh. do this PA job? And I was like, are you kidding me? I'm not a PA. I'm a actor who waits tables. And yes. Yeah, I'm on my way to the sting, baby. Yeah. And she's like, Keith, what do you want to do with your life? And I said... I want to write, I want to direct, I want to act. She goes, well, in that building, there are writers who you'll meet. And mm-hmm. in that building, there are directors who you'll meet. Mm-hmm. And actors come in and out of that joint every single day. Mm. So you should go over there and meet those people. Yeah. And I'm glad I took her advice. Nice. Um, and it was great to learn production. Mm-hmm. So it was, a, it was like going to, um, to get a master's degree. I spent three years working my way up from PA to coordinator to manager to associate producer to producer. Yeah. 
and I learned how cartoons were made. Yeah. And one of the things they do is they record radio shows. Right. And Klasky, right. So the first time that cassette came across my desk and I saw Duckman episode 801 radio show, right. a light went off in my head. Because they're recording the actors first, and they're recording them in the style of a radio play, yep. and then they're going to animate to that audio recording. Unlike Hanna-Barbera, which the artists storyboarded storyboard first right. and bring that to the recording sessions, Klasky's approach was you write the script, you record the script, and the animators animate to animate that, to that audio which recording. I love as an actor sure. and a writer, I love. Yeah. Because so often when... We were working on Rugrats, not to jump too far ahead. Sure. Um, the the little things that we would put in would spark the animators. And I knew that I was sending animators great little bits of... When Tara Strong, as Baby Dill, I was in an elevator one time, and there was a baby. And I started thinking about, like, how do we get this baby, Tara, to sound like a baby? Mm. There was a little baby in front of me. And I was like, hey, baby. And the baby went... I was like, oh, my God, that's, that's comedy it. gold. Yeah, yeah. So I brought that back, mm-hmm. and we just started putting it in. On little, when it would cut to Baby Dill, I would just go, okay, do the, do the thing. Yeah, do the sort of raspberry. Yeah, and it was just a great little something that, that came from my experience that the actor was then able to, the writers picked up on that and started incorporating it. Yeah. Of course, the animators had a great time with it. Sure. So... That sort of thing. But that's jumping ahead. So I did this for three years. You know, they kept offering me more money, which was fantastic, but I was not enjoying production. Gotcha. I was getting the job done, but it was work. Yeah. I'm a creative. Yeah. Um, So after three years, two things were happening. We had a film that um, my friend Brian Fleming had written and directed. Okay. Called Hang Your Dog in the Wind, which we submitted to Sundance, mm. rejected. Submitted it to Slamdance, got rejected. So we started our own film festival in Park City, Utah, called Slumdance. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. And we created a slum, a tent city, in the basement of a Mrs. Fields cookie factory. In each tent was a TV and a VCR. Uh-huh. And we had vagrants walking up and down with shopping carts filled with submissions for our film festival. So you could come into the slum, you get a hot bowl of soup, and then you'd walk down into the tent city and you could check out a movie and go into a tent, tent and watch and the movie. Watch the movie. Oh we also had God. a screening room where we ended up lucking into we had the projector that was used at Bill Clinton's inauguration. In 1997, somebody knew. Okay. They had it, they'd rented it for like two weeks Uh and they only used it for the inauguration. So, right after the inauguration, it was shipped to us. It was like an 8K projector. Oh, And we showed films. Films, yeah. Big films that we had on the screen. Our film. Yeah. We had a 35 millimeter projector in there as well. And we went to, we went to um, Goodwill and literally bought. All of their couches. We're like, we'll take right. the whole room. Yeah. How much for the whole room? And they were happy to give them to us for a song. Yeah. Packed them into a moving van, drove them up to Park City, and made a little lounge where people could hang out and watch movies. And it was a great success. 
independent film channel approached us and said, hey, would you like to be part of this new show we're putting on called Split Screen, which was a show that John Pearson, who's sort of the independent film guru, he, he okay. discovered Spike Lee and mm. Kevin Smith. Okay. He was hosting. And so we were correspondents for oh. that show. And Bat Boy, the musical, which he, Brian and I were writing, uh-huh. was starting to generate some heat. Okay. So I went back to Klasky January of 1997, and I said, hey, listen, I got these th- two things that are happening right now that I okay. really think I need to just jump on. Can I have 10 weeks? Uh-huh. I'll come back in 10 weeks, and we'll see where we're at. And they said, you know what? We've been thinking about you, too. Uh, Paul DeMayer, who was the director on these little Spy vs. Spy cartoons that we did for Mad TV. Oh, okay. I was his producer on those. Okay. And Paul was legally blind. So he could see well enough, but he couldn't drive. Gotcha. So I had to drive him to and from the animation studio in Koreatown Ah. where they were making, they were doing the animation. So we'd go out every Friday. We got to know each other pretty well. He got bumped up to creative director Mm. at Klasky. And he said, you know what? I feel like I can talk to the artists and the writers and the colorists and background and everybody. I just don't think I have a way with actors. Mm. But I bet you do. And there you go. So would you like to take over voice directing for Rugrats? Nice. And you'll work one or two days a week. Mm-hmm. You'll make about what you're making now. Uh-huh. And you can go do your Bat Boy and your IFC stuff and you'll have freedom to do that too. It was a beautiful gift. Nice. Um, and that started five seasons of voice directing Rugrats. And that was your first voice direction gig then? It was my very first gig. <laughs> I walked into a room and I sat across the glass from E.G. Daly, Kath Susie. I'm putting out where they sit. Yeah, yeah. In case people, people can't see, I'm putting out where they sit in the room. E.G. Yeah. E. and Kath and Chris Cavanaugh and Cheryl Chase. And then in the afternoon, we'd usually get Jack Riley and Melanie Chartoff and Michael Bell. Yeah, so yeah. all of these lions of voiceover. Yeah. And I was the kid. I had directed some stuff. At the Actors Gang, we did a, a series of radio plays that I helped to write and direct and produce. Yeah. So I'd done some directing. I'd had some experience, but nothing at this level. Yeah. And it took me most of that first season to really recognize how important it was to approach each actor as an individual. Yeah. Yeah, that's a big challenge in directing, that there's no one-size-fits-all. There isn't. There really isn't. Um, interesting. So you're, you're working with, you're directing the Rugrats for five seasons, you said? Yeah. Wow. And in the midst of that, you're doing Bat Boy, right. your musical, and the IFC stuff, the Slumdance stuff for the right. Independent Film Channel. Yep. And, and then what happened? That was it. Then it was all over. Thank you. Good night. <laughs> that was the end of my career. We can go home. No, and then we had then we had the the lean years, which is the great story of of Hollywood, right? Uh, so all this stuff is going on. Right. Then Batboy opens off Broadway uh-huh. in two thousand one. Rugrats raps finishes production in two thousand one, uh-huh. and split screen is over in two thousand one. Wow. And I was cast adrift. Interesting. We ended up a few years later doing um, Bat Boy in London in 2004. But in that that period between yeah. 
2001, 2002 to 2004 was like being out of college again. I was really cast adrift and didn't know what I was doing. I see it as a blessing, though, because I got to be home with my kids. Yeah. Um, Anne was working her butt off um, in 99-seat theater, so we weren't making a lot of money. Yeah. Um, but I had a lot of time. Yeah. So I got to spend time with my kids, and that's when I started thinking about teaching. Mm. Was, well, what do I have to offer? You know, what? how can I keep the revenue... Uh-huh. you know, coming into the house and what can I do in this fallow time? Yeah. Um, and so I started teaching, teaching put together a curriculum for voiceover, for, for animation. Voice. Gotcha. Video games hadn't even come on my radar yet. Sure. No, that was early. It was. Um, but then in, they started doing some Rugrats video games mm. after Rugrats. And a couple of years later, we started doing little games for THQ. Okay. And that's where I met, Jamie Bafis, who would go on and do Skylanders. That's where I met Chip Beeman, who would go on and run Sound Deluxe and then Formosa. Right. And uh, Amanda Wyatt, who's a talented voice director in her own right. She was a production coordinator at the time. Gotcha. Jackie Shrivers, now Slaydeck, who runs Side LA. So all of these people were there in that mix. And it was about 2004, 2005 that they started calling me in to direct games games and what yeah. were so were the rugrats games some of the first games rugrats were games were the first ones that i did we did a couple of cd roms remember those i do <laughs> <laughs> that was fun what is an optical disc anyway no, yes it still exists so um it was the rugrats games and then they brought me in to sub in um for chris zimmerman on god of war oh is this the first god of war game yeah okay the wow. original yeah. I like to. I, I always remember the day when we got the call that they could show boobs in the game. Oh well, I mean, they were they were they were over the moon. <laughs> it was like a speakerphone <laughs> in the room. It's like, hey, guess what? Guess what? What? We can show boobs. <laughs> it was like, yeah, were, everybody was so excited. <laughs> we got oh the we got permission God. to show boobs in our game. That's hilarious. So, and I I just remember working on that game and thinking. Because I'd come in, and at the time I had no idea. I just thought I was the voice director on that game. Uh-huh. I didn't realize until later that I'd been subbing in for somebody else. Oh, <laughs> nobody told tell me you. like, oh yeah, because it was oh, my first really? game. I just came in off the streets like, oh, I'm directing God of War. Um, oh. And I remember thinking to myself, this game is either going to be a gargantuan hit, yeah, or a miserable failure. Yeah, I couldn't quite tell. Yeah. Um, well, especially if you're only subbing in, you don't see right. the whole picture. I didn't see the full the whole picture. Yeah. And uh boy, was it a big hit. Yeah. Was it a big hit? Yep. Was um, a big hit. And, and then, so began your video game. Sort of began the video game directing yeah. world. And so you're not doing much voice acting at this point. Is that true? Right. Okay. Writing and directing took over. Yeah, from because you were writing Bat Boy and, yep. and directing all that stuff, and, and the the split screen shows were yeah. we were the you know we were the correspondents, we were the producers and writers, and yeah, yeah, we shot them and edited them and delivered them and did all that stuff ourselves. So, and we wrote the Independent Spirit Awards for a couple. We did that in nineteen ninety eight uh, and ninety nine, so that was fun. Okay, so that was that had taken over and that was paying the bills, um, and then 
directing video games took over and I was still writing. I did, had written a, written a couple other plays since then. Um, spaghetti Western called Stranger and a hipsters musical and uh, yeah. a thriller that I wrote. So I was still writing and directing video games. But um, in 2006, I was cast uh, in a production of 1984 oh. that Tim Robbins directed. And this was another fluky moment that um, changed my life. Interesting. Okay. How so? They were, they were doing workshops for 1984. And I thought, you know what? I should go down and be supportive of my theater company. Um, the Actors Gang is a theater company that was started out of UCLA in 1981. Okay. Uh, I joined in 1990. Um, and I'd, so I'd been a member for a number of years, but I had sort of fallen away a little bit. Mm-hmm. So I thought, I'll go down and support the kids who were, you know, workshopping 1984. Sure. And a buddy of mine, Brent Hinckley, leaned over and he goes, I got to hear you as big brother. Oh, dear. You got to get up and read. Okay. And I was like, I don't want to be rude. I mean, everybody's been workshopping all week, and this is kind of the, you know, last night or whatever. Yeah. He's like, just do it. Just go. I was like, <laughs> okay, all right. All right. So I went up and read a little Big Brother, and then we did the O'Brien scene at the okay. end of the show because big the voice of Big Brother then comes out and reveals that it's O'Brien. Okay. So we did that last scene, and I was a young father at the time. So this idea of taking Winston through this, what O'Brien would say is the enlightenment process, uh-huh. I played in a real fatherly manner. Gotcha. You're like, taking the main character, Winston, and you're sort of... Teaching him the difficult lessons that our society has to teach you. Right. You know, about Room 101. Oh, dear. Rats in a cage. And right, right, all right. That good stuff. But I did it with this really just sort of like... Avuncular... This is going to be, you're going, this is going to be good for you. And yeah. it just like. Creepy. It was just one of those moments that just worked and they offered me the role. I was like, okay, how do I fit this into my schedule? Um, <laughs> but did. And that ended up, that show ended up touring the world. Wow. We went to Melbourne and Hong Kong and Athens, not to mention all over the United States, <clears throat> which was a, just a, amazing to be able to listen to those words every night and to be able to make a living yeah. performing one of the best pieces of writing in the 20th century. Right. Um, <clears throat> and we came back to LA for a stint at the Red Cat. Okay. So I sent out some postcards. Which is a theater here in LA. Theater here in LA at the Disney Concert Hall. It's down in the basement. Yep. It's the Roy and Edna Disney Cal Arts Theater. Right. Red I, Cat. Yeah. So we were there and I thought, oh, okay, I'll, send out some postcards and see maybe I can get back into acting. Mm. And uh, I assume when you were on tour, you weren't directing anything anymore because you were busy with the tour. The tour was, you know, it was sporadic. Oh, okay. We'd go out for a couple weeks. You know, we'd do Davis and, and Eugene, Oregon and Seattle. And then we'd go down to Tulsa and then, you know, that'd be a two week tour. Sure. You know, or we'd do a week in Athens or 10 days in Hong Kong or whatever. So we'd go out for a couple weeks at a time and, Normally, I had enough lead time, especially on the international tours because of the visas and all the stuff you have to do to Mm. get out there, that I was able to give enough notice to sort of, I'm not available those weeks, Mm. which was 
tough in some situations <laughs> yeah. where it's like, I can't get out of Hong Kong, but we've got a project for you. Yeah. You know, and I was like, but I can't be there. Directing project. Directing project. Yeah. 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 So um, anyway, we, we, we came back to Red Cat and I sent out the postcards and an agent came to see me and wanted to sign me mm-hmm. uh, for on-camera commercial stuff. Okay. And it was a special artist agency. And I went in to meet with this woman and I said, you guys have a VO department, don't you? Mm. And she's like, how did you know that? <laughs> I said, because I'm a casting director and a voice director and I've cast, I've sent you breakdowns. Sure. She's like, oh, yeah, come on down and meet Kelly Marie. So I met Kelly Marie and she's like, yeah, send me, you know, whatever, you know, you got, just show me what you got. They wanted uh, a demo. Right, which I didn't have. Right. So I went home that weekend and I had a little SM58 and I kind of got in the closet and I, I went on TV and I copied down some stuff from like uh, promos from KCAL 9 and a couple of commercials. And I had some stuff that I'd written before that I sort of tailored. And I just went in the closet and I just was, you know, into my computer and I just did a couple of these things thinking that I was just sending her, a, you know, this is what I can do. Mm-hmm. She was like, great. It, it was my demo. They put it on the on voice bank. Oh my gosh! It was, and I was like, "Holy crap! I've, that's got to change so as right, quickly as possible." For people who don't know, at the time, voice bank was a website where all the agents would put up the demos of their talent, and that's where a lot of casting people would go. And you right. want your demo on voice bank to represent you as well as possible. <laughs> it's um, and if you just sort of whip something up in your closet the night before, that's probably not your best foot forward. It's not your best foot forward. Yeah. Fortunately. Um, Special artists had a a, a, a small-ish department, okay. but they were getting lots of submissions. Okay. So I went out a lot. Nice. I went out for a lot of stuff, and that's where I, I um, started booking, and that's where Thane Krios came from. Uh, I was with my time with special artists, and um, I did a uh, and tagline Thane, for... Thane is your character in Mass Effect. Right. Yes. So I booked that. Um, through them, and then began to finally redid my demo, <laughs> which is the demo that I'm using now, and it's it's more proper. Yeah, but it was just one of those. So, when were you directing Marvel Ultimate Alliance? Because that's where we first met, right? Boy, when was that? About ten years ago? Like I want to say oh, eight, somewhere around. Yeah, I think somewhere around there. Yeah, I think it was about ten years yep. ago. Mm-hmm. When you were directing Marvel, I think that's the first time we met. Uh, I think so. Yeah, and I was cast as Iron Man. Right. It was Marvel Ultimate Alliance 2. Right. Because in the first one, I had played Winter Soldier and, like, Dark Colossus. And in the second one, they cast me as Iron Man, right. and you were the director. Mm-hmm. And we had very interesting recording sessions on that game. We did. <laughs> yes. Because as as recording sessions often work, or often did work, the scripts were coming in hot off the presses. Right. And we were just recording them. Yeah. And it was great because you came in with like, well, what's going on? (laughs) Can I have a bit of context? And I was like, yeah, can we have a bit of context? That'd be great. Yeah, that was that was my rallying cry through that whole process was uh, so my listeners understand. I would come in to play Iron Man and I would have a spreadsheet, not a screenplay, a spreadsheet with all my lines, but nobody else's. So I had no idea who I was talking to. And you were directing and being quite wonderful. And the producers were on a phone patch so they could listen into the recording session. And I would say, okay, 
what's what's going on? And they would respond by telling me who my character was. They say, well, you're Iron Man, who's Tony Stark, who's... And I'm like, I know who Iron Man is. What I don't know is who am I talking to? You know, I need context for what's going on. And that became sort of our rallying cry through the whole process. And it was not something that the game developers were used to giving right. because they had the, all the context in their head. Right. But they hadn't put it in the script because it wasn't a script, it was a spreadsheet. Yep. And they weren't, they had, did not have familiarity with explaining the context of the scene to an actor. And so we literally had to train them to, to give context. And I remember we recorded a whole bunch of sessions and then I went away. And then I think probably like a month or so later, we came to do some pickups mm-hmm. and they were on the phone patch again. And I said, what's going on? And literally the developer said, well, the context of this scene and you and I like looked at each other through the glass <laughs> and we went, Ah, yes. (laughs) We have brought you into the storytelling world. Thank you. Yeah, that was an incredibly difficult job because what they do frequently, I mean, in order to plug stuff into a game, is they 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 label it. So within the game, there's a there's a label for the piece of dialogue that's gonna get dropped in. Yeah. Each line, they usually call an asset, which is already revealing, right? Indeed. It's not a performance, it's an asset. It's an asset, And each yeah. asset needs its unique uh, identifying name so that when they sort them in the computer, they know which one they're pulling yeah. for which part of the game. There's a program that just goes, blah, and, and sends all the audio files to their proper locations. Right. The problem is they will often sort their Excel spreadsheets by file name. Right. So you end up with just this gobbledygook. Yeah. And it's really hard and it There's, was really difficult. I finally learned how to dig down in that program to find the right tab, to find the right spot, to do the right filtering so that I could uh, see what was your line before or your line after. Yeah. So that I could provide the context that was necessary. But you were one of the first actors we had in yeah. on that project. And I was trying to get up to speed uh-huh. um, as you were. And so it was... Uh, it, it was, was a great challenge. It's gotten much better. Yeah, it was the Wild West. It was the Wild West. Back then. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, because the technology was advancing in a way that was allowing folks to do really amazing storytelling. Yeah. But the the scripts hadn't caught up. Well, the, the infrastructure, and this is, a, this is a challenge I've had in other games, where they, they, the game engine is so complicated to build to make sure that the game functions correctly. Right. That they just don't have the time, the energy, the, 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 the man and woman power to set up functionality in the game engine to export the lines in screenplay format, which is what we as actors have developed over the course of the last century of filmmaking right. as an effective way to communicate the context of what's going on to the people who need to collaborate with you. Yep. These guys are just trying to make sure the game works. You know, like they're just panicking because they've got to get this thing done. And so it, it is, can be challenging for them to, to sort of, you know, rejigger their mind and say, oh, we have to export this in such a way that's more linear so that we can figure out, so the actors can figure out chronologically what's happening so they have context for the scene so they're not just saying lines in isolation with no, because when you do that, it just comes out as cliché. There's no, yep. there's no specificity to your acting yep. decisions because you don't know who you're talking to, what happened before, what's going to happen, and any of that. So it is, it is one of the sort of Wild West aspects of working in video games is as the technology shifts and changes, you know, it's, very, it's a very mercurial world 
Um, and it's starting to mature and there's starting to be more regular practices of things. But even now, there are times I'll go into sessions and because maybe we're doing a VR game and that has a completely different game engine that does something else. And you're like, oh my God, here we go again. We have to, we have to like keep reinventing the wheel every time the game engine changes underneath us. Right. And this is one of the things that I'm kind of a champion of, and I know you are too, the work that we've been doing with the interactive community mm-hmm. is getting actors and developers to talk with each other. Yeah. And when we say interactive community, we mean video, video game. game community. Yeah. Um, so to get the, so that the developers can understand what the actors need right. and we can give them what they need. I was at a, a panel at GDC, the game developers conference right. a few weeks ago, and it was a voice acting round table, which was a really neat little round table with devs and actors at the table talking to each other. Yeah. And, the devs, evidently, you can now export Excel spreadsheets as scripts. Oh, wow. That they've, someone's created a macro, someone's done something yeah. where you can take it and output it so that it looks like something that an actor is familiar with. Yeah. Welcome Which to the is, 21st century. Welcome to the 21st century. <laughs> Makes you glad you lived this long. Yeah. Doesn't it? So the more that we talk to each other. The more that we, the games, the really, the, the good ones, the big ones, the storytelling ones, mm-hmm. um, understand that storytelling is a, is an integral part of their work. Mm-hmm. It's not just gameplay, but it's also character development. Yeah. It's also growth. Um, and taking advantage of the centuries and millennia we've had of perfecting storytelling form. You know, I mean, I may say that for the last century we figured out how to write a screenplay, but we've had millennia before that of figuring out the structure of plays and how you tell a story in an hour and a half or two hours, the two-hour traffic of our stage. Right. Why not leverage all that experience and expertise when you're working on your game if your game has a lot of narrative content in it? Yeah, and I'll give I'll give uh, props to uh, Treyarch, which was a development company that does um, the Black Ops um, mm. series. Uh, they, is that the Call of Duty? Call of Duty, Black yeah. Ops, yeah. They, each level is written out like a film script. Oh, okay. And then there's just, it just stops for gameplay. Yeah. And then it picks up on the other side of the gameplay. Right. You know, so, and the same thing happened with Final Fantasy, which I just finished doing, was we went, and Final Fantasy, God bless them, they went... This was 15, right? 15, Final, Final yeah, Fantasy Final Fantasy 15. 15. They went from chapter zero to chapter 10 in order. Wow. So we recorded the story in, in order. order. Now yeah. we jumped back to do gameplay stuff. Okay. And we jumped back to do AI stuff. So when they're traveling from place to place or whatever. Yeah. yeah. But the story of the game, yeah. we did in chronological order from beginning to end, which yeah. was something I've never well, and that's a certain... been able to do before. So the main characters... Got to track the story. Yeah. And and, and that's a certain uh, uh, tendency of Japanese game development. The, the Japanese right. games tend to be far more linear narrative story driven. And the American game developer world tends to be more sandboxy, more branching narratives. Um, and I'm sure, I, you know, there's probably a whole 
podcast episode about the cultural influences on that and why that's the case. But it is the case. Um, and so that's, that's interesting. It, it does not surprise me that you had such a sort of linear chronological storytelling experience while working on the Japanese game as opposed right. to... But Treyarch would give me a level. Yeah. You know, so you, as a screenplay. So right. it had a beginning and a middle and an end. end. Yeah. And I knew that, you know, uh, it was funny because on the first level they gave me, the player character wakes up on a train in Cairo, mm. has to go to an interrogation room. Mm-hmm. Then the person they're interrogating gets kidnapped and they have to chase that person to the exfil point. That's the mm. level. And I. Exfil meaning like sort of. Like infiltration, exfil. It's oh, the okay, exit it. spot, like to yeah, get yeah. out. Yeah. yeah. <coughs> exfil. I like that. Infiltration, exfiltration. Yeah, it's the exfil nice. point. Yeah, right? that's good. Um, yeah, I learned that on that game. Uh, and a couple weeks later, I got a, a script that was called Prologue. And I said, oh, so this comes before the Cairo level then. And they went, uh, Cairo's like level eight, dude. <laughs> I was like, well, wait, he wakes up on the train. They're like, yeah, yeah, but that's after like seven other levels. Yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, God. All right. <laughs> Same thing that we did at, 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 uh, Mar- at Ultimate Alliance. I was yeah. like, listen. Before we go too much further, you got to tell me the story. Yeah, you got to. I thought I thought we were kind of moving through this, you know, chronologically. Chronologically, so it doesn't matter how you want to do it. You want to send me a treatment. You want to take me out to lunch. You want me to come to your office. However you want to do it, we just got to sit down so we can all get on the same page. Yeah. So that I can be the best servant to you, right? To get the performances you need in your game so that they feel right. Yeah. So we did that. And they were happy to do it. And Was it lunch? Was it a treatment? What was it? it I went to the office. Okay. And so they did sort of a, a pitch. Right. They pitched you through. They the, had a big whiteboard gotcha. with the main story, the underlying story, right. and then the super secret uh, narrative. Right, right. Sure. Which was mm. very, very enlightening. And for the Call of Duty fans who've played the campaign, uh-huh. um, there's a really great super secret narrative nice yeah it's pretty fun good so i didn't i hope i didn't i didn't hijack your chronology of your biography because you you were talking about god of war and i jumped to marvel ultimate alliance so i may have skipped over stuff but there were a few games in between there but but from that from that point of god of war you were you were basically primarily voice directing indeed um but you were still auditioning for stuff as a voice actor with i didn't really get the voice acting thing until uh after to, uh, 1984, when okay. I came back, and we we played here in 2009, I think. So okay. it's just been the last decade. Gotcha. That I've been back in the mix as an actor. And do you think, uh, and in proportionally, how much time do you spend voice directing versus voice acting? I spend a lot more time directing than yeah. acting. Yeah. So two thirds directing, one third acting. About or, that. Yeah. About that. About proportion. that. Yeah. And are you comfy with that sort of breakdown of stuff? Yeah, I like it. I like it. Yeah. Um, directing is, um, is you get the whole project. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You get to tell the big story. Yeah. Um, whereas so often in acting, unless you're one of the main characters, mm-hmm. you know, you're, it's a, you're a utility. Yeah. You know, you go in and you do your, who's that? Come here, you. <laughs> Get him. Yeah. You know, all that stuff. You're an, you're an instrument in the orchestra. Indeed. Rather than the conductor. Right. Yeah. 
So, and those are fun too. I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, but being a director, being, being, having the whole, I just love being able to spin yarns with people yeah. and to be able to work with talented people to do that on both sides of the glass, Yeah, you know, with, with good writing, uh, which I've been lucky to have frequently mm-hmm. and really good actors, which I'm lucky to have all the time. Nice. One of the things I appreciate most about Keith is that he has the courage and the flexibility to define his own career path. When I was young, I assumed that I needed to specialize in only one aspect of entertainment, so that I could only be an actor or I could only be a director. It seemed like the different positions in the industry were quite separate from each other, and that it was hard to switch from one job to another. Listening to Keith's story is a lesson in taking each opportunity as it comes, making the most of it, and being open to creating your own path. I think that's an incredibly powerful lesson. It's important not to pigeonhole yourself too early in your career. Definitely try your hand at what appeals to you, like, for instance, voice acting, but be willing to entertain the idea that there may also be other ways into the industry besides voice acting. Who knows? One of those other opportunities might not only be just the right fit for your personality and skill set, but it may end up being much more satisfying than you could have ever predicted. Give yourself the freedom to find your own niche in the industry and discover your own career balance, leaving room for serendipity along the way. In the second part of our interview, Keith and I delve deeper into what inspired him to pursue acting in the first place. What was it about radio and storytelling that was so compelling to him? And how did that passion for story shape him as an artist? We touch on how he approaches voice acting differently from voice directing, and we also discuss how he created the character of Thane for the Mass Effect series of games. It's a very rich episode, and I'm sure you'll enjoy it. In the meantime, if you'd like to learn more about Keith's work, including his studio, the VO Lounge, and the classes he offers... I'll include a link to his website in the blog post associated with this episode at voiceactingmastery.com. Thanks for listening, and until next time, I wish you all the best in your voice acting endeavors. Take care. You've been listening to the Voice Acting Mastery Podcast with Crispin Freeman. To get your free report revealing the five most common mistakes to avoid in voice acting, point your web browser to www.freevoiceactinggift.com. Thanks for listening.